always bringing it back to the system, capitalism, uh, corporations uh, using worker division to weaken workers. And there will be no what the, the, their first go-to is like dividing workers among races. So we have you know a training for uh, committee workers that talks about racism in the U.S. Hi, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, co-host of Black Work Talks. I'm here with my good friend, co-host Bill Fletcher. Bill, how you doing, man? Not too bad, man. We have a little bit of bad weather here, but otherwise, uh, you know, hanging in. That means snow bad weather or just cold weather well, bad weather? it was raining a lot. It was supposed to be some snow, and I've got my fingers crossed that the snow doesn't come. Okay, well, here in the Bay Area, we don't see snow. They did close the mountains about a couple months ago, but right now we're pretty good. I have a question, you know, was it yesterday? The kind of the voting rights thing went dead because clearly they couldn't pass the legislation. They couldn't stay in filibusters. It's dead. What's your thoughts on that, man? So it didn't come as any kind of surprise, Steve. Um, and, and that's why I'm sort of irritated when I hear that there's black folks that are disappointed that Biden didn't do more to get it passed. I mean, the reality is that everybody knew that there was a 50-50 split in the Senate. It's been pretty clear for months that Manchin and Cinema were opposed to ending the filibuster, even temporarily. Um, and so the votes weren't there. And, uh, and there was a lot of pressure that was put on Manchin and Cinema, not just by the White House, but by the Congressional Progressive Caucus and, and other folks, and they weren't budging. And so this didn't come as a surprise at all. A disappointment, for sure, but no surprise. And I think that it means that, what I've been saying, Steve, for a while, we need a new voting rights movement. And it needs to be on multiple levels and not just, you know, a lobbying. Now, what's been frustrating for me, Bill, is this whole question of how the Democratic Party failed us. They are who they are, right? And one, they are on a centralized party. This notion that somehow the party could force folks to do things or Biden could somehow be LBJ reincarnated and kind of take somebody to a woodshed does not reflect that reality today. Correct. And I worry about um, us sticking in these myths about the Democratic Party actually impairs and harms our, our movement. But Bill, what do you think, given this, unions and other labor groups should do? Well, before I answer that, Steve, I really want to double underline what you just said, uh, because I think that that speaks to a certain level of political analysis that is lacking in many quarters, that people continue to look at the Democratic Party almost as if it's a democratic centralist organization. And <clears throat> it's not. It's actually multiple parties. And we should start referring to it as a Democratic Party alliance, because that's really what it is. It's an alliance. And there's multiple parties inside of it. So what do we do? Well, I think, first of all, as I said, we need a new voting rights movement. And I think that that means bringing together the forces like the Poor People's Campaign, the unions and others to engage in a strategic discussion about engaging in uh, voter rights efforts nationally, state by state. Certainly, there needs to be continued pressure on uh, mansion and cinema. And, and I'm assuming that the Democrats are going to probably try some sort of compromise 
to peel off some Republican votes. But the reality is that this is probably going to be a state-by-state battle, Steve. And I think that where we have the possibilities of ballot initiatives, we need to move them. I think that we're going to need mass pressure, you know, of, of actually demonstrations. And I don't mean just Saturday demonstrations, but demonstrations that are raising hell. So I think that uh, things are going to have, have to happen on, on a, a number of levels. And obviously, we have to change the balance in Congress. People can't act as if we're dealing with magic. If you don't have the votes and you have a party in power, the Republicans, that is a party in favor of dictatorship, you're going to get this result. The one thing I think about, Bill, as you're talking is the importance of having strong, powerful, vibrant organizations. Because we can't do this off of some tweets or, or text or kind of a light mobilization. And that's why I'm glad we have our guest today to come on because we need to build organizations. And so, Bert, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. How you doing? Hi, Stephen. Thank you. So, so Bert has um, multiple hats. Like, you're the hardest working man in show business, Bert. You're both chapter director of the Akron community together. And you're chapter president of United Here Local 23, is that correct? Uh, yes, um, I'm the chapter director for African Communities Together for the D.C. area. Mm-hmm. And I'm also uh, vice president of United Local 23. United Local 23 is uh, it's not a local in one city. It's actually in um, over 10 different states in the south, including D.C. D.C. is just one chapter, but... Uh, I'm the vice president for the local, yes. So I have two jobs. <laughs> okay. And when do you sleep and eat, man? Uh, <laughs> whenever I can. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with that, man. But, um, I mean, I know a little bit about a- African communities together. I know your co-founder, Amha Kassa, fairly well when he's out here. But for a lot of people in the audience, we know nothing about that. So tell me a bit about the organization, okay? Sure. Uh, so African Communities Together is an African immigrant organization. It was founded back in 2012, as you said, by Amahakasa, an Ethiopian immigrant. So the first office was chartered in uh, New York. The majority of the membership in New York is in West Africans. In 2016, a small chapter was started in the Washington, D.C. area, providing Communities organizing support, you know, for labor uh, unions, Unite Here and uh, SEIU 32BJ on the hotel organizing work, and also providing free immigration legal services for African immigrants. So that's how it started. But uh, since then, it has grown and have so many programs that now we're running in Washington, D.C. So ACT has now two chapters we're working towards uh, opening another chapter in uh, Philadelphia very soon. Oh, cool. Very cool. So, so what are your major programs, the, the two or three major programs you have in the organization? Yes. Yeah, so uh, nationally, ACT's priority is immigration policy. We have thousands of African immigrants who are here temporarily on a TPS status from you know, Sudan and Somalia and all these uh, uh, other places in Africa who who have been here for over maybe you know, most of them over 20 years but living in this temporary status and uh, also you know undocumented African immigrants most of them working as essential workers through the pandemic so 
our uh, national immigration work is focused on passing legislation to get a permanent status for African immigrants. We succeeded winning that surprisingly during the Trump administration for uh, Liberian immigrants, Liberian TPS holders, temporary protected status. That was a huge victory that probably would support over five to 6,000 Liberian immigrants who live, who's been here temporarily. But the fight continues for other TPS holders and various African immigrants who are here in various immigration statuses. But, you know, locally here in DC, our major programs are providing free immigration legal services for African immigrants. But we do a lot of organizing. Uh, One of them is supporting labor organizing, especially around uh, the two airports in Virginia, the uh, National Airport and uh, Dallas Airport. Those There are thousands of workers who work for these two airports who are majority of them, about 75% of them are African immigrants who are mostly from Ethiopia. And they have been in a struggle to to make their jobs better, uh, to have more respect on the job. You know, we can go later more on the struggles as, a, you know, as workers here in the U.S., you know, working for these uh, very big and important airports, but very difficult working conditions and uh, minimal wages. So since it is in Virginia, the biggest fight was winning minimum wage for airport workers. So we, uh, we've been in the struggle to win that, so in Virginia, minimum wage was seven twenty-five, mirroring the federal government minimum wages, and we were able to win um, to raise minimum wage just for airport workers to fifteen dollars. It will be fifteen dollars next year, so that's been a major victory that we have. But winning, winning minimum wage doesn't bring uh, respect on the job, doesn't bring benefits and other important rights and benefits that come with being in the union. So. The fight continues for the airport authority to pass labor peace, we call it, which is uh, companies uh, remaining, uh, staying neutral during worker organizings. So we, we're in a fight to win that policy. But in addition, especially since the pandemic started, when most African immigrants stayed home, landlords have been a big problem for our community, trying to evict a lot of tenants from their homes when they were laid off from their jobs. Specifically, we our biggest tenant organizing program is in Alexandria, Virginia. It, uh, there's a, a, an apartment building which has about uh, 4,000 residents. It's a big unit. It's a big compound. Uh, most are African immigrants who work in service industries. So they have lost all their jobs, you know, as the pandemic started and there was a, a massive like filing of uh, evictions by the landlord. So we organized the tenants to fight back uh, the landlord, you know, doing so many actions first, starting with car caravans to stay safe during a pandemic where hundreds of cars were participating in a protest and grew that movement into lobbying the state legislature first to stop evictions, so to pass eviction moratoriums, and then later to win uh, rental assistance. Almost two years into that campaign, into this pandemic, we have managed to keep uh, these tenants in their homes. It wasn't for this campaign, 
um, the landlord has uh, had filed over 541 evictions just during the pandemic, just from this one place. So, uh, you know, those are our major campaign fights that we organize our community, but there are, there are others also. So, Brett, I want to circle back to, to the whole question of the pandemic, how it impacted your, your members both in the workplace and the communities. But I have a couple other questions about African communities together, by the way. Um, I thought it was interesting how you said how you consciously started the D.C. chapter linked with unions. Because oftentimes what happens when I see community groups, they kind of look at unions very warily, you know, and they have kind of a, a little dance with unions, very, very transactional. So the idea that the first step was to work with unions, to me, is much different. What was behind that idea, starting that way? Okay, so uh, uh, our founder, Amaha Kasa, uh, comes from labor organizing uh, in California and uh, worked with our union actually many years ago uh, for a local in San Diego. Our union leaders know him and know that, you know, he has this community organization that organizes African immigrants. So when we first started organizing airport workers, we did a survey uh, to get to know the workers. And we found out that uh, 75% of the workers are African immigrants. And Unite Here is one of the most progressive labor unions. Uh, so this uh, labor organizing at the airports, not just as a worker organizing, but actually organizing the community itself so that worker organizing can have community support, but also the worker organizing can also have backing from politicians um, and uh, officials who oversee the airports. So, uh, you know, our leaders made contact with uh, Amaha to start the uh, community organizing work, you know, before we even started the labor organizing work. So that's how it's all started. Bert, the relationship between um, U.S. African Americans and African immigrants over the years has been complicated. There are assumptions that both sides make, and I'm talking about going way back to like when Cape Verdeans first came to the United States in the 19th century, but, uh, but more recently in the post-1965 period with an uptake in, um, in immigration from Africa, the relationship has been complicated. Um, how does that, how does your organization look at that challenge and and um, yeah, how does it look at that challenge? I, I think you know I want to understand the question better. So how 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 would you describe when you say it's complicated? In what ways? Well, for example, frequently African Americans feel that African immigrants look down on U.S. African Americans, don't really understand race here, and. African immigrants uh, sometimes feel that U.S. African Americans are hostile, unwelcoming. And, and so there's like this sort of clash that happens at different points. And, and that's what I mean. Like, how do, have you seen this play out? And, and how do you see the relationship between African immigrants and U.S. African Americans? I've been in the labor union for 15 years uh, in the D.C. area. Most of the or workers that we organize are 
African immigrants from Ethiopia, African Americans, and uh, Latin American immigrants. So those these are the, the you know the biggest three groups in our membership. Yes, you are right. There is uh, there is a tendency for this group of workers to stick to their own groups, you know, in the workplaces. Like it's true. Like if you walk into a break room uh, in a hotel or other workplaces where employees sit down for lunch, like there's the Africans table, there's the uh, you know Latin Americans table or Black African, I mean Black Americans table. So there's that you know sticking to your sticking to the group thing. But you know I don't know about non-union locations, but in the union workplaces, organizing always starts by identifying groups. Uh, finding you know the group leaders from in this uh, from these various groups and like bringing them together into the organizing so that you know the leaders can work together to organize their you know co-workers into a fight. So there is you know a lot of uh, Ethiopian immigrants that we work here in the DC area uh, know African immigrant I mean African Americans through movies and like you know other things from back home. And so when they come here and, you know, start working with uh, the group, they have this understanding of like how African-Americans are like, they're outspoken, they're not afraid, they're not afraid of management, they're not afraid of authority, so to say. I think, you know, vice versa, like, you know, sometimes African-Americans, when they don't know, when they haven't worked with Africans themselves, probably think, you know, see them as, you know, immigrants I don't know much of the culture or much about the U.S. And there is this misconception, I would say, between the two groups. But I think, you know, it's exaggerated because as as they start working together, actually the Africans and African-Americans work together well than other, you know, than other groups. Um, a lot of Africans um, identify or, you know, see themselves trying to find their identity here in the U.S., through African Americans, and that's as as in African immigrants, you know, live here for a year or two or three, and then understand the system, how you know how the U.S. is, then they try to see themselves more as African Americans, like identify as an African American, than any other group. So, to be honest, like I haven't seen much of what you say that the on the jobs that we organize. What sort of conscious steps do you take to bring groups together? So it's like a natural tendency to be apart. Are you doing conscious things to kind of build some bridges between the groups? So it's always, especially in worker organizing, uh, it's management who uses this division among workers. You know, don't listen to African-Americans like, you know, they don't want to work hard. You are hard workers, right? Like that, they use these kind of terms like to divide the groups. So what we do is, you know, when we or when we recruit committee leaders from the various groups, you know, we have very constant uh, meetings, you know, one-on-one meetings and group meetings uh, when we organize. Like our organizing model is based on, you know, recruiting strong committee leaders who can carry the campaign forward. And, you know, it's always bringing it back to the system, uh, you know, capitalism. Uh, corporations uh, using worker division to weaken workers, and uh, you know it's they, what the, the their first go to is like dividing workers among races. So we have you know uh, training for 
committee workers that talks about racism in the U.S. because uh, a lot of immigrants heard about racism, but like you know, we we have a very uh, detailed training of racism in the U.S. How slavery and then uh, the Jim Crow era and like uh, the civil rights movement and the things that happen. Um, it's always a training that we provide to uh, to bring workers together. How a lot of the terms that, you know, back then, big businesses and, uh, you know, maybe slave owners or plantation owners or officials and businessmen in the South, the terms that they use, that, that they use the same terms now to, you know, first they were dividing, you know, African-American and white workers during the, you know, uh, the early years of uh, labor organizing and how that's now also evolving, you know, dividing um American workers from immigrant workers, you know, this, this training, you know, actually helps. And, uh, we usually rely, you know, heavily on, uh, uh, on the training of telling your story, like being vulnerable and telling stories, sharing stories among committee leaders. And, you know, we do that training. We, 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 we role play. We, you know, we do we tell our stories and then, encourage our committee leaders to do the same and most of the time when people hear stories personal stories of their co-workers which they have had maybe some biases about or you know that when they see that 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 person is just like them you know uh, that have gone through problems just like them and you know understand each other like as human beings and then you know everything then turns into okay we are workers and the other side is management and you know that usually you know helps to bring workers together and for any immigrant not just from africans it's even you know for people who grow up here there's no there's no education in you know in schools or like any you know anywhere where people actually understand like some of these things that we see here today for example the right to work states you know these states which allow workers you know to be in the union but don't have to pay dues like when you really look into the history it's it's rooted in racism it's rooted in back uh you know in the jim crow era where business owners and corporations used you know to divide white workers and black workers to use that to weaken unions so we do a lot of those trainings which we started doing recently but has been very useful I love to see those training. It's very important to be doing, man. One last question that I'll kind of see the mic back to, to Bill. In those trainings, do native-born blacks get a sense of the history of, of the African immigrants? So in Ethiopia or Eritrea, or if you have other other countries that are in the workforce in, in this area, do you focus a sense of those histories and how kind of economic forces shaped both those histories and why people actually here? And why they left Africa? Just wondering. Not very much. You're right. We should do that. That should be our next thing. Um, you know, it's uh, African African countries went through a very difficult struggle to you know to decolonize, um, especially you know Ethiopians, which are the majority of Africans that we organize here in the DC area. We're very proud of our history of fending of colonialism, white colonialism that. Uh, you know, Italians, when they came to invade Ethiopia in 1896, you know, we were, you know, Ethiopians were able to defeat Italy and like Ethiopia was able to remain a free country, um, 
uh, after that. And that's like a pride for Ethiopia. That's the pride for a lot of African countries. And Ethiopia has actually um, helped uh, a lot of uh, African countries to, to win the, the liberation wars that they had and formed the first uh, African uh, Pan-African organization in, in Addis Ababa, and which is still is today. So it'd be good to share those stories with you know African Americans. That's a good idea. Bert, I'm I'm curious yeah. about how how the pandemic has affected the members of your union, and how has the union responded to the pandemic? Yeah, I don't think there's ever been uh, uh, such a difficult time as we, you know, as a union, as a, you know, one we passed the last two years. So if you remember, but back in March when the pandemic happened and when people were getting laid off, service workers were the first one to be laid off. And our members, uh, most of the, you know, most of the work in DC depends on federal government workers and federal government work. And a lot of our members also, especially African immigrants, had two jobs. That's how they were surviving. They, they may have one job in the morning and another one in the afternoon or, you know, drive Uber or taxi as a second job. So all these works, all these incomes went away. And we had to re, uh, and the union actually lost about 98% of our members because they were laid off. And so, uh, we really have to come together um, uh, to use these workers who are laid off to help each other, to apply for unemployment, and then to get services, you know, uh, grocery cards or um, food donations. Um, all this, you know, all this work was done mostly by, you know, laid off workers who are able to, you know, volunteer to help their coworkers and their neighbors and their communities apply for the you know for various unemployment and other assistance programs that um, that we had to do and and quickly we also realized that you know this pandemic was just not going to go away that's going to stay for a while so we have also uh, a campaign to get the companies to agree to recall workers whenever the pandemic is over so we you know we had a working co- workers campaign and to win a two-year recall campaign for our members uh, so that um, a lot of our members now have a right to be recalled until April 2022. And that's going to come up soon. So we are actually in the middle of bargaining and organizing to extend that recall rights. But the most exciting thing, you know, that I would say that our union did while we were in a pandemic was the, the elections last year. During the presidential elections, our union had mobilized our laid off members to work as campaign canvassers for Joe Biden uh, in various states, you know, in Nevada, Philadelphia, uh, in Florida, and also in Georgia. Thousands of our members, you know, went to knock doors for uh, the presidential campaign and it was instrumental in, you know, winning Nevada in winning uh, Philadelphia and Georgia. And then, you know, after the elections, after the general elections uh, during the Georgia Senate runoff, a union had 1,000 canvassers, like who were all laid off union workers um, from all over the country, including DC, 
descended to Georgia, mostly in the you know Atlanta and Columbus area, knocking doors. I think uh, you know if I'm not mistaken, I think we knocked over two million doors uh, during the Georgia uh, runoff, Senate runoff, and. Um, you know, the union power that we keep organizing even when employees were laid off helped us move other programs like um, this political program that I believe was very instrumental in winning uh, the presidency, but most importantly, the two Senate seats in Georgia. Just, you know, one quick example I can give you is like, according to, you know, our data, there, were, there are about uh, 30,000 African immigrants around Atlanta area. And there was a specific group of African immigrant canvassers that we have organized to specifically knock on those doors. And the turnout was the highest because, you know, um, this, this group is, you know, a low propensity voter, which usually won't vote during the local elections. So that turnout has actually helped for Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff to win because if you have, if you remember the margins were like, you know, within the 20,000s, the massive turnout that we were able to drive out the African votes have helped. Um, so, uh, but still, the last year, some of our members have went back to work, but you know, our members who depend on federal government workers going back to work are still on layoff because federal government workers are still working from home. And they lost unemployment in September, they lost uh, the COBRA payments for their health insurance at that same time, and there hasn't been an extension. So between September and now, our members are really a very difficult place, waiting for Congress to do something or for federal governments to go back to work so they can go back to work. So it's been, it's been very difficult, specifically for the last uh, four or five months. So, Brett, you, you mentioned that the the, elect, the electoral work that was that was done both in the general election in twenty twenty and in the runoffs in, in Georgia. You know, one thing that kind of popped out in the news post um, the elections, kind of the analysis of who did what, was this notion that there was a growing segment of of, of immigrants of color who actually supported Trump. Now, I'm not, I don't run those numbers. I can't say you know was it true or not, or what side those sort of things. But did you see? That sort of segment of of your membership, that for a variety of reasons, kind of lean towards the kind of conservatism that will cause them to to either stand down or support Trump in the election. Almost none. There are very very few, to be honest, of our members who you know supported Trump. Uh, like I can probably can count them with my my fingers. Uh, that's how low it was for our for our cities, at least from what I know. So it hasn't been an issue. We can name names. I can name names. So we can yes. name names. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. Sounds good. Yeah. So, um, Bert, in terms of your local, one of the things that uh, Steve and I like to explore in in this podcast, these podcasts, is the issue of building power. And um, to what extent the local, in this case, is building power for its members and particularly for uh, workers who are so often marginalized. How successful do you feel your local has been in building power for your members? And what are some of the challenges 
that you face going forward? Our local has been uh, increasingly has been very active uh, politically uh, because a lot of our work locations and um, you know other policies that we'd like to see from uh, the legislatures or elected officials is very important to moving our you know members forward and also building power. So what you'd see more and more is you know outside of worker organizing this you know the tenant organizing work that we're doing for example in Virginia has been instrumental in building power with the city council and the mayor because these workers and these residents have been going out and you know campaigning uh, for these uh, uh, politicians but also we have invested a lot of training of our members who to 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 learn how to lobby how to testify how to frame their arguments um how to you know how to use their power to bring themselves together to organize their neighbors and their coworkers like one example i can give you is for example during the pandemic when uh, there was all these evictions being filed and we were trying to win uh, eviction moratorium from the virginia state legislatures it was a pandemic um they were not in their offices, you know, elected officials, the senators. So what we did is we got organized. We we went to state senators' houses and knocked the door, you know, at the front door and say, hey, you know, we're outside. Uh, we have the Ethiopian coffee ceremony that, uh, you know, with all the snacks and everything, everyone dressed in their traditional clothes and inviting the senators out. So they can sit down, have coffee and talk to tenants uh, about what they are going through facing evictions. And this was really, really powerful. And it was more, it's new. It's a new way of lobbying. And this is not a kind of uh, lobbying that the senators were used to. We're getting more innovative and spending and investing more in training our members to be more, to, to you know, to speak up and to organize and to, to learn more about their powers. This is good, man. This this has been a great. I'm I'm so glad you came on the show because um, the work you're doing is is for me and maybe our audience as well like a brand new area. So I'm super glad to hear a lot of the work you're doing. It's, it's really exciting, inspiring. But I need to begin to kind of like land this plane. So let me let me ask one final set of questions, man. Um, you know, I, I I love music. By the way, I just love love music, and um, I'm trying to develop a soundtrack for liberation for my different guests. And so you get to contribute to the soundtrack, bro. And so what, what music kind of gets you going in the morning, kind of gets you driving everything? Any, anybody in particular you listen to? Mine is Bob Marley. Ah. You know, I've been I've been listening to Bob Marley since I was young and like I still listen to him. And yes, there are new songs that come up like I like it for a while and then I get tired of it. But I see that for over 25 years, like, I can listen to Bob Marley every day, anytime. It's like my anthem. What's your favorite man of Marley? What's your favorite one, man? So, let me think. Um, you know, War. War is like, I have to say, War is my favorite. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What I love by Marley is Redemption Song. I love every version of that. I love, love, love Redemption Song. That's cool, That's cool man. How about books, man, or magazines or articles? What, what books are you reading, man? What are you reading right now? I used to read a lot before, but I have to say, like in the last few years, I've been so busy and with all the 
you know, the Netflixes and the <laughs> Prime videos. It's been hard to read. Uh, but usually I, I like reading, you know, uh, historical books. I, I love history. Um, even, you know, when I watch uh, uh, Netflix or other, you know, uh, medias, I, I like watching historical uh, documentaries. It's uh, it's always been my passion, and also it really helps me, um, you know, learn about the, you know the, the places that I go to, or like uh, the you know places where I live, um, and also you know places that I come from, Africa. Uh, I, I like uh, reading history books and watching documentaries. That's great, man. Um, I'm really glad you came on the show, and this is. Um the first of many conversations. I'm truly excited about what you're doing. I'm glad to meet you, man, and I'm glad to hear about your work. And um, to be continued, man, you take care, okay? All right. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate it for having a chance to have this conversation with you and Bill. Thanks a lot, Bert. During World War II, the black community, led by the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper, advanced the idea of a double V campaign, a war against fascism abroad and a war against racism at home. I think the country as a whole faces a similar dual battle today. We face the threat of rising authoritarianism and the threat of a pandemic-related economic dislocation. As Bill and I talked about, the right is moving to eliminate basic democratic engagement in electoral politics, making it harder to vote, due to voting restrictions, making voting mean less due to gerrymandering, and making the outcome of close elections inevitable GOP wins due to their control of the voting certification process. And as Bert discussed, the pandemic has battered workers on multiple fronts, unsafe working conditions, loss of employment, eviction from home. A core element to win these battles is organization. Given the importance of organization, it is great to hear how both of BIRD's organizations, African Communities Together and Unite Here Local 23, engage these battles. Particularly interesting Local 23's approach toward building the union. In essence, understanding the workers' communities prior to engaging in workers' organizing. I look forward to hearing more about how they're doing in organizing the workplace and organizing the community. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Black Work Talk comes to you via Organizing Upgrade, an online space created to strengthen social movements. If you appreciate Black Work Talk, check out Organizing Upgrade's weekly live show, Frontline Dispatches. The show spotlights organizers and activists at ground zero of fights for racial and economic justice. Like Black Work Talk, it gives the mic to people with worlds of insight you might not hear elsewhere. You can catch it on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Pacific, or anytime on Organizing Upgrade's Facebook page. I hope this podcast can grow to become a part of the movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you may find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I would love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at stephen at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Till next time, stay safe and be well. <laughs>